0: Now, healthcare plays a huge part in everyone's lives because we all rely on medication and medical treatments at some point. We had an earlier episode where we looked at the journey from breakthrough to blockbuster. What does it take to bring a drug or treatment to market? And our guest talked about how startups have been very uh, nimble and almost agile than Big Pharma in bringing those innovations to market. But is that the complete picture? Today, we're gonna look at the other side of the table, What does Big Pharma do to work with biotech startups and research institutes? Anna Grant was a research scientist for 10 years, and she did her MBA at Cambridge before changing to commercial roles in various large pharma companies in the Nordics. She's now Associate Director of Corporate Integration for Novo Nordisk Global. So welcome, Anna.
1: Thank you very much, Conrad. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah. So, Adam, how, you've worked in various roles before. How does Big Pharma approach the question of whether to build in-house capability versus acquiring that through M&A partnerships uh, or other kind of alliances?
1: Well, I think it, it really comes down to, um, to t- three factors. One is, is the, the growth potential of, of the company and its ambition. And um, then there's the time and then there's the, the internal capabilities. Basically, is there, is, is, is there t- enough time uh, and internal know how to be able to fully realize that growth potential that that the company is, is, is looking for? Um, usually the constraint is either time, you need to move fast or capability. We're looking at um, breakthrough innovations, uh, breaking into new therapy areas, something totally novel. Um, and if there's no time to build that in-house, then then it's perhaps better to go out and see what's the best that the world has, has to offer. And how can we partner um, with the best minds and the best innovation really anywhere? Um, and so then you'd be looking at uh, a couple of scenarios one is um, if there's if the ambition is to to quickly have to patch um, the internal the pipeline so basically um, making sure that there's enough re- revenue and enough growth and enough medicines in, in the portfolio perhaps the companies then looking at m and so merger and acquisition um, if the ambition is to build a long-term pipeline Um, and really lay those investment bricks um, carefully and and really ensure height of innovation through a long term, then perhaps a collaboration um, is the best way to go. And then, of course, if there's a need to, to diversify, to move into new therapeutic areas, for example, business segments, technologies, then then you're looking at capability building through um, typically M&A or, or partnering, really anything that works.
0: Mm. Thanks so much, uh, uh, Anna, and before we go on, let's just have a shout out to some of the people watching today. We've got uh, Aaron from Surrey, Saswati's watching from Bangalore, someone's joining from Canada, uh, Christina's from Barcelona. We've got Lano in Doha. Uh, Vigil, thanks for joining again, from Nuremberg. Mahima's from Assam in India. Uh, Sarah, actually, is a a student here, (laughs) or a recent alum, actually. So, and then, Pavel from Poland. Audrey from Paris. And Vicky from Taipei. So, thank you all very much for, for joining. And just a reminder, if you've got any questions, please put them in the chat or comments. So, Anna, you mentioned these various uh, factors, right, and various ways in which big pharma can work with uh, startups or it could be research institutes and things like that. Uh, who, in in that corporate boardroom, deciding? Is it going to be people from uh, the science side, people from product, from marketing, uh, or from legal? Who 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 decides, or who whose voices are heard? when big pharma thinks about what kind of partnerships they want to, to go get into?
1: It is, I would imagine that in most pharma companies, um, when you go high enough, it's really about big, bold strokes, ambitions, um, direction of, of growth, um, direction of investments. And then I would also imagine that um, good leadership lead, leaves it to the teams below to figure out what is, what is the best way to go. So it is a business decision like any other, but the uniqueness I think in pharma companies as well as other technology companies is, and science-based companies is you have to follow the science. Um, if, there is no, if there is not enough novel science, to um, leapfrog into an area if the scientific knowledge discovery isn't right for making turning discoveries into innovations, meaning something that ultimately helps people and society in the end, um, that if that translation is just there's not enough knowledge um, at this point or evidence to support uh, what is emerging, then, then it would be, of course, a more risky decision to to enter that area and and then of course to your question well how do you partner which kind of partnership um, would work for then then it's really down to um, what i mentioned before is it about accessing one particular type of of idea or is it more accessing an entirely new segment like a therapeutic area for example and then you need you're looking at much bigger strokes
0: Hmm. And we actually had a comment from uh, a, an alum who couldn't make the show, but she, he emailed me. So Abel, um, he's worked in Cambridge for many years, working in genomics. He started a company as well, and he's worked with many big pharma companies. So his, Abel's comment is: there's this, uh, this this discrepancy between big pharma and biotech doesn't exist anymore because big pharma is beginning to work like biotechs and it's more about that relationships with uh, in general with innovative drugs anna do you agree with that this this characterization that big pharma is becoming like biotechs and it's about how they work together with startups
1: you know that's a, that sounds like a great start of a debate and i'm so sorry he couldn't make it i would have loved to hear what his thinking was behind the first statement um perhaps he was thinking that that of of biotechs that that became big like for example um cell gene is a classical example but um but there's also um in my understanding there's um, data showing the opposite if you look at um all of the new medicines that uh, make it to patients and market in uh, big pharma companies then I would wager that the majority of those medicines, those innovations, ultimately originate from outside big pharma. So, um, either universities or or biotechs or somewhere along the way, they've ended up um, in the portfolio or through collaborations in such a way that it is a big pharma company that ultimately brings them to market and makes them available to patients. So, in that sense, I would, not, I would not immediately agree what his statement is. But then again, I, I, as I said, I really wish he was here to join the debate. Mm.
0: And I think the uh, other part, because what you just mentioned reminds me of what we covered in the a previous episode, where the idea was that you had these startups that were very good at, as you say, you know, seemingly bringing innovation, right, drugs. But it was because they experimented a lot uh, and they were very disciplined about cutting their losses, or when they realized something 's not going to go, they just dropped it. whereas on the larger companies it was they experimented a lot, but they find it more difficult to sign off and say let 's not carry on." Uh, do you think that is uh, the kind of characterization and therefore it 's about bringing those ideas that seem to to rise above the, the parapet into Big Pharma, who can then market and maybe scale it?
1: You know, if you have uh, a limited amount of funding and it's lean, you need to really think through what you do with it, right? Um, and there's this concept of, of killer experiments, really throwing anything at everything at an innovation, as as a an idea discovery to see whether it floats or sinks if it sinks then, then it sinks if it floats then maybe you have got something um, I would like to think that this is a way where big pharma couldn't be, be like biotechs um, better at better at really reading through good ideas and rationales and um I must say, on the academic side of things, it does look like biopharma cuts a, or pharma, big pharma cuts a lot of projects sometimes, mm-hmm. and, and and that does suck if you're an academic collaborator and you've been working in the field for 20 years and a company just has a project with you for three years and then they said, oh, actually, we exited the space. But again, that is the decision that you're talking about, where it serves a different purpose, mm-hmm. that the function of 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 innovating in in big pharma serves as a different purpose, and you get you maintain, in my view, the best um, height of innovation and agility and leanness if you if you are very mindful about um, selecting the best ideas, and if they're high risk, then just finding the best leanest way to de-risk those.
0: Mm. I think we can take some of the questions that are coming in um, Brian Yang who I think was your classmate in Cambridge hi, he's Brian. got a few questions actually so hi Brian so his first one is how do you decide the valuation for target companies if it's just IP and some early maybe some early clinical trial data
1: Well you know sometimes and it's actually not that uncommon that um, indeed a big pharma wants to buy even it's just a technology platform um where there might not even there might barely be ip there might not be any early market adoption that it takes i think um the the classical number is up to 10 years to bring medicine to the markets it's a long high risk game um, how do you then decide the valuation for m a well you need to look at i would imagine every company does it differently but you need to look at what what is the potential for patients um, when this medicine might uh, might be available? What would its most likely indication be? In so disease space of use, basically, um, how many patients would be benefiting from it? Uh, what would payers be ready at that point to pay? Um, and there's a lot of, of factors that flow into a, a, a very classical valuation model then at that point. But it is high risk. Um, there's a lot of intangible value in biotech. And um, it is it, it is not easy. And that's why valuations may also differ quite a lot between um, between potential um, partners looking to, aqu- or big pharma companies looking to acquire. Sometimes it also comes down to synergies. Um, one big pharma company might look at an acquisition case, seeing a different, with the, their lens, seeing a different potential, seeing a different synergy and combining what they might already have or their own um, existing sales force in the field for example that gives one valuation to one business case whereas another pharma company might lack that and might need to take on a really really great idea but then then hire the team and hire the the commercial um, team later and that of course also has an effect on the valuation in the business case.
0: I think this is a good time to go to another question from Brian which is uh, how do you handle this post-M&A integration? Because a lot of data shows that that's the part that really determines, yeah. you know, makes or breaks the deal, isn't it?
1: It is, and it's. I've worked in both spaces. I've worked more in the pre-deal space, which is often seen as a bit, if I may use the word, sexier than post-merger integration. But deal-making is a sprint, and integration is a marathon. and that's where the rubber really hits the road like you said i think there's a a well-known number floating around that 70 percent of m a don't capture or realize the full value potential and not to speak about the small amount that then actually grows that value potential further in time um i think ryan your 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 question could be best answered with it always feels like not well enough, um, because unfortunately, for well, for a big pharma company, um, bringing in a couple of small biotechs per year, for example, it's, you you have a process for it. but then for a biotech that's being bought, it's 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 a massive change um, and inclu- it includes people. It includes humans that are, Sometimes we forget how complex um, organizations and and for things to work out. It's not just numbers on paper anymore and IP. It's really about making sure that. That the people involved uh, are helped the most are given the best support and direction so that both sides can begin to work together as one team as fast as possible. and only in that way, I believe that integration can be really properly handled.
0: Mm. And I think before we, we move, go away from this, obviously, sometimes you've mentioned about the importance of people who are being, who are in the company that's being acquired. Um, and in many cases, the, this could be the biggest asset because they're the best and brightest minds who've worked on this, isn't it? Yeah. What's your experience in terms of how do you how does a big company hang on to these people who might have been very used to whether working in a very research environment, for small teams, and now suddenly, ooh, they're, they're, they feel like they've been acquired, you know, yeah. bought out. How how do you, how do big companies handle that?
1: Well, I, I can only speak to what I've seen, um, but. You know, and I think the first thing to remember is they didn't choose to work for uh, the big pharma company. They chose to work for a small nimble biotech and then they got acquired. And so suddenly they can't just walk to perhaps an IT person that they've known for the whole time. They have to call some office somewhere else in another country um to try to get their new laptop to work if they have a new laptop on day one so 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 there's a lot of um there's a there's there's just a lot of mindfulness needed from the big pharma partner to make sure that if one of the integration value drivers is a productive team, a productive organization, whether it's commercial or research or something else, it really finds ways to, to retain the people. And it's not just through financial uh, incentives. It's really around having a very deep think about what is the new reason of why these people should continue continue to come to work. What made them driven and productive and happy before and how can they now in their new home continue to be that? And sometimes it's not for the same big why anymore. There needs to be a new purpose to go chase. And and that clarity, um, I believe that makes a huge difference.
0: Yeah, we've got this other question from someone on LinkedIn. Is there a trend in pharma to either work with or internally develop venture building teams? So small teams dedicated to quickly develop or kickstart new, new products. Or is this model not viable because there's just these long lead times?
1: I, I would imagine that this concept of entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. um is is common in most industries that are technology heavy especially that's my sense um, yes the lead times are long but there's a lot of steps before right and perhaps a venture building teams um, sole purpose is not to develop a therapeutic or an innovation from scratch and take it all the way to market to patients. It could also be to just go after a new kind of science and bring it to a proof of concept to see that it actually works in a human being and then hand it over oh. to um, the larger organization to further develop. For example, those are models that I've seen in, in several pharma companies.
0: Okay. And we also have a question from Pavel, uh, who asks, do you, in terms of st- corporate strategy, right, is there uh, only looking at M&A, or do, they, do, do pharma companies look at collaborating on projects with uh, other kind of network companies? I'm not sure what the network companies are. Do, do, you, do you know what that means, Anna? Um,
1: I would imagine that if, if, Pavel, if you're, if you're asking um do we design or does a company design strategy in terms of any way of accessing innovation and collaborating on it or only what you can go out and buy um, my sense is that you need to look at what, as I said time um growth potential and uh internal capabilities uh, is the best option to buy or is it to collaborate um if you buy a company you pay you pay for a premium right you need to make the initial investors happy you need to make shareholders happy um if you take that money and you buy an entire company and you you put it into i don't know a dozen earlier stage collaborations spread out your 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 bets perhaps if you will um maybe in some cases that is the better way forward it really depends on 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 what the big pharma company needs and in what time horizon
0: and this is going to be a very general question i guess um Saswati asks, you know following up on our discussion about people's Assimilation in m that's a very terrible word, assimilation, sorry. <laughs> it goes back to this thing about being a quiet. Yeah. Um, Saswati so asked, how would you define, you know, big pharma company culture?
1: Oh, Saswati, so I think there are as many company cultures as there are companies. Um, I would like to avoid falling into the traps of stereotyping big pharma versus biotech. Um, Also, to the earlier comment that there are big pharma who would like to think that they're more like biotech or perhaps have a really trying to cultivating a mindset that is more biotech like. Um, You know, it's interesting. I've seen a few, like if we, if you, when you run an integration after acquisition, if you, if you need to integrate um, teams of people. Um many companies would run a culture survey or a diagnostic and and try to trace out, like map out the differences. And based on what I've seen, it's not always the stereotype of the biotech thinks they're agile and the big pharma companies the dinosaur. Sometimes those those maps can be surprisingly overlapping, or there might be surprising gaps. So My sense is to try to. Look at. The combination of. Two companies as a unique case and try to figure out, okay, what do we have here? How how do these two kind of instruments play together? How can we best best, uh, make them play in, in harmony together that amplifies? And it's not it's not it's not always the same changes that you need to make. And what I find interesting interesting is that I, I would really like challenge also big pharma companies to look at an integration project and not not from a point of cultural empirism and try to stuff their culture on everybody, but really also try to ask themselves, well, okay, if this needs to work and deliver value, does that mean we have to change, and how in that case? So. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I I would really encourage looking at every case as a unique one.
0: Yeah, those are wise words. And so Swati, sorry, I didn't mean to say that you are terrible for using the word assimilation. It just creates these perceptions, I guess, of of being like uh, you're an organism being absorbed by this big blob, like the Borg, if you remember Star Trek. You know, I think think... you
1: probably feel like that. I have Mm -hmm. never been acquired, if you will. But that's definitely, I don't think that's a very uncommon feeling to be Mm. absorbed on on that. That's how it feels like.
0: Yeah. We have a question from Sarah who's asked, do you think that biotech needs to think more about market access when evaluating their pipeline in order to improve the rates of innovative therapies that make it to market? Or do you think this is better suited to do it in partnership with pharma?
1: I'm trying to understand the question. Uh, do we th- do I think that biotech needs to think more about market access when evaluating their pipeline? So I assume, looking at where to focus investments? Um, do you know, I, I what is very commonly seen, what I see in in biotech is there, biotechs have have a different business case, right? They, they, the, the, they need to um, bring a, a therapeutic to 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 market to patients as soon as possible, and sometimes that means going for the smaller indications first, the rare indications, the ones where you may have a lot less patients uh, per country that you choose to bring them the the medicine available to. Um, they may not have the funding from their investors to run. Uh, clinical trials of tens of thousands of of patients, and they shouldn't. Um, but then again, the discrepancy often becomes unless the big pharma companies is looking for a rare disease asset, they will look at it, look at the asset, and say, "Okay, we understand you're 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 going for this patient population because this is how you will you will make a difference with your resources." We're looking at something else. Um, We'd like to perhaps take your medicine and bring it to a much wider group of patients where it can make even bigger difference. Um, then it's up to the, of course, to both parties to negotiate and um, agree on, on if that is possible and, and how that could be possible together. I hope that answers think- the question.
0: Yeah. And if Sarah, you can please feel free to put in the comments if you want any further. Uh, clarifications. Moving on to another person's question here, Coco actually works in the Accelerator, uh, has a company here at the Accelerator at Cambridge and it's in, uh, in the medical side. So she asks, if you have a platform technology product that has multiple use cases across different diseases, how common is it that one partnership with a big pharma on one disease will lead the same pharma to scale the deal to other areas? So how much horizontal uh, conversation within a pharma happens
1: so if i'm trying to under, read and understand the question correctly here but it is inherent to life science innovation that when you start with a discovery in a research lab it can take you many different directions um, because there you might be dealing with a new discovery uh, in a molecular pathway, or you might be uh, developing a technology like gene therapy was at the time, um, but you have so many different uses, and now, of course it's used for multiple purposes and diseases. Um, big bi- biotechs will need to choose wisely. How to partner out their innovation if it's a platform technology Um, many biotechs choose to offer um, access to the platform technology to anyone who wants to and is a credible and good partner and strike multiple collaboration agreements and then kind of piece out the cake to say okay we give you the rights to further develop and research within this therapy area we give you the rights to do it in this therapy area Um, and so you end up sitting in a biotech with a platform that is um, getting proofs of concept in multiple diseases at the same time almost Um, when it comes to a point where that platform technology is proven to work in many areas um, and a big pharma partner would wish to buy the whole company. It, yeah, then then you need to read through, of course, carefully every agreement and, and, and evaluate every partnership to see is that even possible uh, as a big pharma partner. Um, but that's um, I think that's that's beside the point here. Um, I like platform technologies. There's a lot of potential in them. Um, And so do big pharma companies, right? So often a valuable uh, target for acquisition could be one that delivers that long term pipeline growth based on a novel protected platform.
0: Maybe it's time to flip it a bit and, you know, uh, ask your opinion on what should startup companies or startup biot- biotech startups do when they get that call from Big Pharma to say, hey, we're interested in you, let's have that first date, that first conversation. How should the start biotech startups prepare for that first date?
1: Um, no, it, most Cases to my delight, and I've been out uh, scouting and listening to hundreds of pitches in my in my career um, with some positions that I had previously. To my delight, most of the companies have been well prepared. Um, I think there needs to be a willingness to to have a conversation, to hear each party out. And then also an understanding that on the other side of the table might sit someone who will fall in love with your idea. But a might have 10 minutes or 20 minutes time if it's a busy conference, to hear about it and really understand why it's the best idea ever. And B um, might also have a lot of critical questions before they fall in love with your idea. Um, so I think it's just entering the conversation from a, a a point of departure of 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 clarity in the pitch, and a positive bias, so a trust in 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 the potential partner, that that brings you far already.
0: Great, and I think maybe it'd be a good time as well, you know, to. Ask you a bit about how you made your career transition, because you were on the research bench side for ten years, and then you moved yeah. into the commercial area. How did you do, make that transition?
1: Well, you know, um, you mentioned I neared, I worked um, in academia for nearly a decade, and I um, I confess I was lost in job ads. They were English. And I was reading them and I did not understand what the job was really about. So I thought maybe it's a good time to also just take a year and, and really learn and think about what is it that I want to do. And that's when I, I um, was uh, happy to find out that I, I was uh, enrolled to the Cambridge MBA program. Um. And then. I think for me it was always obvious that I was not going to be that stellar translational research scientist that just, you know, spins out a new innovation after another from their lab. I didn't like pipetting enough, I think. So I took the lazy road. I thought, well, perhaps my place is in a fast-paced environment where I can jump on the bandwagon and work with Stellar innovators who've actually developed those innovations and maybe where I'm best suited is to in that kind of long and thorny path where discovery becomes innovation and I actually got some really good advice during my MBA year I talked to a lot of of the students in the class uh, as well as mentors that you at the school provided me and I got a couple of pieces of advice that I really followed one was if you want to work with biotechs and, and and developing innovation, you need to know what's in the other end of the funnel. Like you need to know what success looks like. And so I actually jumped into a fully commercial role. I joined joined the marketing end of a big pharma company. And first, I wasn't put into a fully commercial role. Um By agreement, I joined joined through an MBA recruitment program, and by an agreement, I was put into medical affairs, which is kind of in between, where they knew I could swim quickly, and I would be able to then um, get a quick onboarding and understanding of of commercial the commercial world. Um, and then I spent a few years actually learning about product launches, understanding what's coming out of the other end of the funnel before moving into where I really think I will stay, which is really um, business development, external innovation, working with startups, investing that, that space.
0: And it's a good time to uh, maybe bring out this question from someone on LinkedIn. What do you do on a day-to-day basis? What you know, the details of your day?
1: Now in my uh, job in, in corporate integrations, I am busy with um, two types of work. One is is projects like live integrations. Um, we're looking at a couple of, of very interesting um, potential deals that I'm, I'm involved in. And um, that's kind of eating more and more into my time currently. Uh, but then also because I work for a company where this, this our team has just been established because we're looking at a trajectory of of uh, a lot more BD activity and M A the coming years, we're also um, investing a lot in capability building internally. How can we become better at integrating uh, companies? What you know, what structures, what what kind of uh, processes, tools, playbooks, teams, capabilities do we need to have in place to make sure that when when our leadership signs on the dotted line we actually make that partnership or that acquisition worth the while in the long run for everybody
0: yeah now you talk your your career journey has been from the science side to commercial and we have a lot of mbas who are interested to work in pharma work in the healthcare industry but they don't have that deep scientific knowledge that you had. What's your advice to them in terms of how can they get into the uh, pharma industry? How can they act as a bridge like you have between the science and the commercial?
1: You know, I I don't think that you need technical knowledge. Um, you, You learn, I've seen People do really well coming from finance, coming from accounting, lawyers, sales. Um, I think what my advice would be what you can focus on in good leadership, that that's what's needed. So um, if you have a team, whether you're leading the team or, or influencing a team, if you can focus on the team's performance, and hire people that are smarter than you and leaving the subject matter expertise to those people then that is a value that you can bring if you can create um, a, a, an open space a trustful space of sharing views sometimes also uh, critical views uh, in a clear way where um, your team can clearly articulate opportunities and risks then then that is valuable. Um, I think more important, perhaps, in such a role is instead of knowing the answer, is asking the right questions. And those questions are not technical. They're, 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 they're strategic ones, right? They're questions about what does it take to succeed? What are the risks? Um, if there's this limitation, what can what we're looking at what is the absolute best that it can deliver in these constraints um it is it is bringing together a clear view taking all of those um those analysis of subject matter experts that hopefully you hire that are smarter you, you than you in that sense um bring those together into priorities into synthesis in it into a clear picture and then often also taking away the pain of decisions from your team owning the decisions to say okay this is what we got it's now my responsibility as a team lead to triangulate to feel comfortable with residual risk uh, if it's not a non-negotiable one like business ethics or patient safety but because often you know a decision is done with a risk in a time constraint there's never time to get all the assumptions and so um, owning that decision can sometimes be a big relief um, for the people who don't have to own it who sit with all the data
0: okay we have a couple more minutes so we'll just quickly run through a few questions becky had asked What's your view on pharma companies working with digital therapeutic startups?
1: There's a lot that I could say and um, talk about. It's a broad question, Becky, but um, there's so much potential in that um, combination, and it's so hard, is what I see a lot of pharma companies discover. Um, The business model of a digital... Um, startup or digital companies is quite different than the pharmaceutical one that derives this innovation from a wet lab. Digital therapeutics are interesting because they're in the middle, right? You take a digital device and then you actually prove that it has health claims, that it, 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 it has a therapeutic effect, like a, a classical example would be mental health um, improvement. I think as, when we move into the space of more and more prevention, more and more early disease uh, intervention, we're looking at a world where health is really lies in the hand of a consumer who may, may or may not be sick yet. And then that's where pharma companies, those who will make it who big in that space, who are able to work with digital health and digital therapeutic companies alongside their medical, chemistry, and other kind of biology-based therapeutics.
0: And we have a question from Mohammed who asks asked you to put on your future um, gazing lens. And uh, what do you think about pharma and biotech in 10 years? What percentage will they have of global business?
1: I have no idea, Muhammad. I cannot pull a number out of my hat. I do know, I don't even have a hat on at the moment. Um, I do know that people are getting older and that unfortunately creates a burden of, burden of disease on each one of us who gets older. And the society that sees a lot more, more aging population um, that needs to be cared for I would say in those parts of the world where that is true, um, there will be more opportunities for anyone who is able to develop something that truly changes things towards the better in a cost-efficient way. So I would, unfortunately, because we're dealing with illness and not health, I do see that it's possible that in 10 years we'll have an even bigger focus on health and, and illness and wellness
0: well, that was our last question. So, thank you so much, Anna, for giving us that insight into what goes on in Big Pharma, but also sharing your own career experiences. And I hope people who are watching, some of you would be inspired to work in Big Pharma or move from that research scientist background, if you like Anna, into commercial roles. So, but thank, thank you so much, Anne. And thank you so much for our listeners for watching. The balance sheet will be back next week. We have Helen Thompson who is a professor of political economy here in Cambridge. She's also author of this book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. We'll be looking at how geopolitics um, has implications for everything from energy, financial markets, and democracy. So Helen will be giving away one copy of her book. Um, So if you can, join us on Friday, 12 May, 12.45 p.m., And till then, uh, stay safe and see you soon. Thank you so much.